Our text this morning is from John 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the middle of the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember uh, the first time I read this text in my Bible, and I saw, I don't know if you see this, if you, if you have a, a, a text, uh, a regularly formatted Bible, I remember the first time I saw, as a young man, after we had become Christians, the first time I saw it, a text marked off with some parentheses and a footnote. And it read, the earliest Greek manuscripts do not have John 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse, uh, what is it, verse 11? Yeah. yeah, verse 11. The most reliable early manuscripts do not have this text. <sighs> uh, we even began our worship, if you paid attention to a call to worship, why do we worship? And we read from Isaiah those grand and great and glorious words of promise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, okay, so I, I had that conviction. And then I remember reading this passage, reading, seeing how it was blocked off in the text. Now, older Bibles won't have that. They don't mark it off. They, they accept, thank you, thank you, Arnold. They accept the, the, the text as it's given and don't mark it off for the reader. And, uh, and so uh, I prefer those, actually. I think that's an appropriate, that's an appropriate way to present the Bible. Why? Because, uh, because that, there's something alarming when you see the text says the earliest manuscripts do not contain John 7. 50. And I'm like, ah, what about the grass withering? What about the flower fading? And what about the word of the Lord? Standing forever. How could it be so uncertain? How can we be so uncertain about what is the Bible and what isn't? But I want to put you to, to put you to some peace today. I even you should know better than this. I should know, I should darn well know better. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, should I preach on it? John Chrysostom, one of the famous preachers of history, completely doesn't even preach on it. Should I preach on it, Father? I, I'm praying about it and thinking about it. And I, I realized how wrong I was. For the reasons I'm telling you right now. Why? And in fact, because of Luke. Luke, of all things, can help us with the book of John. And then Augustine will help us. And Calvin and others. What I mean. So that little passage 
is obviously not Johannine. It doesn't belong to John as an author, and there's no way to dispute that. The language changes, the vocabulary changes, the sentence structure and syntax changes, and in a set of very early reliable manuscripts, this ain't in there. But it's, there's a funny part about that. It's actually missing in Western manuscripts. What I mean by Western is if you were sitting in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and face West, which would be Rome, facing West, all those manuscript tradition, it isn't in there. On a very reliably, very reliably, you can see it. But in the Eastern tradition, it's more common. It, it starts popping up in manuscripts. Luke, now there's a way we can understand that this is Bible, and Luke tells us how he wrote his particular. Now, not a lot of people in the Bible are self-aware when they're writing. Writers don't say to you, hey, Jack, this is the way I'm thinking about this, or hey, Dylan, or hey, reader, I want you to think this way as I write. It doesn't happen a lot, but for Luke, it does. Luke begins, he's a doctor, he's, he's trained uh, academically, he's trained analytically as doctors would be at that time, and so he, he, he thinks like a doctor, and as he writes Luke, he begins by saying, you know how I wrote this book? I collected stories from everywhere. I would go to prime sources, primary sources, and I went to these people and I interviewed them, and, and the picture you get is that of all the many people who encountered Jesus, and we know there were thousands of them, literally thousands of them, and at the core, you could say it was about 70, that those people continue to tell the stories of things Jesus did just verbally and personally, or they write it down for a friend. Do you know that Jesus did this? And, and so there was an abundance of textual input from outside, and that's where, John, that's where this comes in. You know what Augustine said a couple hundred years later? He thought that the reason this was missing from some manuscripts was precisely because it seems easy on adultery. It seems like it's giving her a free pass, doesn't it? I mean, she screwed up. What? How is she able to walk? How is she able to escape judgment? How, this seems like it's treading lightly on issues of sin, and especially the scandalous sin of adultery. This is very, it's vivid. It's, it's almost crass. But anyway, Augustine thought, I'll bet somebody took that out because they didn't like it. Now, we do have evidence of that in the manuscripts. A little straw will be writing along. They go, I don't like that. He changes it. And the reason we can tell is because so many scribes were copying, we can test that scribe against the other hundred who were writing. And we can trace where there's interpolations, where there's injections, where there's additions into the text. We can see it. It's really cool. It's, a, it's like a whole, there's a whole science to it of looking at every manuscript. And of the manuscripts available in the New Testament, there are over 5,000 in Greek alone. 5,000! All of our ancient knowledge of the ancient world from Tacitus, for example, or, or from Homer and his fanciful recollections, only come to us with the survival of one, two, or five documents across thousands of years. But not so Christianity. We have a wealth, we have an almost embarrassment wealth, there's an embarrassing wealth of evidence and words. So I want to give you some confidence today. Like Calvin said, there is nothing about this text that doesn't breathe the apostolic spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to claim today. This is true. And the church acknowledges it true under the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I don't even entertain this as a believer. And the reason I'm preaching on it, I think when we're alive by the spirit, we recognize our Savior's voice anyway. And I hear it. Do you? I hear it. It's an, odd, it's an odd story, though. It's an odd one. 
And I love how it sits in the book of John. In fact, I would even wonder, John was a bit of a compiler, it seems. Uh, I think he wrote the book of John as a fill-in for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to add all the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't deal with and to give a fuller picture of Christ, a spiritual picture of Jesus. Uh, perhaps John even put this in. Because I, I suspect John compiled most of the New Testament. He's the last living apostle. And I think he put it together. But that's mine. We don't even have to believe that, to receive this as the word of God, and it's true. Uh, so where, where shall we start with this story about the woman caught cheating on her husband? Or is she cheating on her husband? Or, 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 was he happy? did he happen to be married? And maybe she wasn't married, and he was. And we don't, we don't know. No details are furnished for us. We don't, there's no way we can read this and have a good idea where she really stands. And obviously, for the writer, that's not important either. It's not important. Nothing about her really is that important, except that she is being presented as a test by religious leaders uh, for Jesus. Then he writes on the ground. That's another thing. No, nobody ever tells us what's he, what he's writing. He doesn't write on the ground as a habit. He's not mentioned by any other uh, writer. Well, what's he scrawling? And some of you are going to go, what's he scrawling? What's he? That's not. I'm not going to answer that. The text doesn't. You don't need to know. I have a, I have a place I want to go with that. You'll see what I mean. As we're going into this, but but uh, that no. I, what's the crisis here? And I I I, uh, I sense there's a crisis here that that perhaps we haven't seen. Maybe you've seen it easily enough yourself. Uh, is this operable? Yeah. Oh, is it? Thank you. There we go. Anyways, to his own. Okay, good. Now, um, what I see in this text, and the reason that the text is there, one of the things it does, is it breaks the fourth wall. Just a little bit. I think it breaks the fourth wall a little bit. What do I mean by that? Have you ever seen that in a, in a, in a, uh, in a movie when a character is interacting with another character and suddenly turns to the camera and says something to you in the camera? That's called breaking the fourth wall. Now, and there's a way this kind of does that. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 are all about people after Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. They can't stand Jesus. They're after Jesus. And, and there's a constant back and forth. In fact, it's chaotic. It's hard to follow. And there's a hundred voices screaming a hundred different things. But it's all very abstract. That's why I like it so much. <laughs> it's all very, it's all ideas. This, I, this, this is a story right in the middle of this, this uh, dialogue between God, Christ and the religious. This is a story. It pops right in the middle. And this story takes all the ideas that Jesus is talking about, about Jesus confronts religious people and irreligious people. He attacks people who believe and people who don't believe. He attacks, he does, he resists any category. That's what's in this story. That's what kind of, that's the tension that broils in it. I mean, let me see if I can ex explain what I mean. Let's go into the story itself and see what we can discover about it. Now, he, Christ is on the last day of the feast. He went back to the Mount of Olives. It's a place he stayed frequently. And he comes back, and they bring him the woman caught in adultery. Do you understand what is happening in this scene? God had commanded that no judge or jury, no person made the decision about whether, or they enforced the decision about whether Peter died for his sin. 
the whole community would come together and execute Peter. Not one person. And so everybody would pick up stones and throw them. Now, that achieved several things. It made justice part of the work of the community. Like the community comes together to exercise justice. It also saves one person from being an executioner, right? Because you're not sure which stone would have killed him. And then the whole community here, in a sense, rejects the person too. It's very, very powerful. Well, that is what's happening. She has been dragged in. It's very, uh, it almost sounds kind of, it dragged in. And they, and, and they know the reason, they tell us. And they, and they plop her in front of them. And now we've got, we've got a test. We have a problem. We're going to create a problem for Christ. Now, what's the problem? Well, Jesus, if Jesus condemns the woman, Jesus condemns the woman, that's not very popular. Why? Well, the reality is, somebody here, a number of people here, probably committed adultery. Some of you have probably had a relationship with a married person, and or in your marriage, you have loved or entertained fantasies about another. Adultery is very, very real. It's very common. Now, if Jesus takes a stand for righteousness, and Jesus says, kill the woman, well, that's not very popular. A lot of people are going to go, well, next. Yeah, it's a scary, it doesn't, it's a way of undermining his popularity. But if he does it the other way, if he says, oh, let her go, she's fine, she didn't, it's not that big of a deal, then the religious people get to go up and go, wait a second, Jesus has failed to meet the word and its standards and the law and its regulation. And justice has not been satisfied. That's on one side. Then another group is going, you know, I thought this Jesus was about love, and I'm here for a religion of love, and, and I like love, and, and, and I want Jesus to be, forgive her. And, and, and if he forgives her, I'm going to win. And if, you, see, you, see, you, hear, you hear the polls that are happening there? This division amongst the crowd that's possibly about to happen. They test him. Now, now, I want you to hear what Jesus does, um, or see it, at least, in your mind. He ignores them. <laughs> Let me tell you, I can't think of a way to be more disrespectful <laughs> to somebody coming to you than to literally be asked a question and to do this. I'm sorry, did you ask me something? Whoever is amongst you is without sin. You, you, you start the execution. I'm writing on the ground. <laughs> and now, I want you to, we pray, we, 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 we sang about his majesty. I see it. What's going on? It's a lot of things are going on here, but he completely ignores them. They continue to ask. They passed her. So they push him. They keep pushing. And he does this. He does this. Woman, where are thee? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. She calls him Lord here. It's a precious moment. I think we need to own. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And then he goes, go from now on. Sin no more. That's, that's kind of harsh. Isn't it? Well, that's, that's, that's telling her to be perfect, to be a different person. Didn't he just excuse her? Didn't he just refuse to judge her? Didn't he just condemn her judges? There's a lot going on here. And what we wind up happening is this little story winds up being this wonderful distillation of a big and deep tension in the human spirit. 
Do I want justice or do I want freedom? Do I give you justice or do I give you grace? Do I want more rules or do I want more freedom? You know what the world needs is more. No, what the world needs is more freedom. And what we're introduced to in this text, and Jesus doesn't really care to even engage with him one level, is the way in which people, all of us, struggle with a a dilemma. Are we Democrats or are we Republicans? All right, at the meta level, this hits you politically because the human condition resolves itself into antinomies that are liberal freedom versus constraint and law and justice. Which one is more important, cries the human spirit, right? And so we form two political parties. And, I, and, and so at a meta level, in every country, in every society, these are a big struggle of the human heart. But we can get more particular. There also happen to be the way certain personalities function, aren't they? And some people, doesn't it seem, some people are just more given to be merciful. They're just merciful kinds of people. They have a merciful kind of attitude. Doesn't, 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 doesn't Peter just seem like a merciful guy? Yeah. Who would you want as a judge in front of you, me or Peter? If you're smart, my money would be on Peter, right? But all that is, is personality. And so disposition, and so disposition and political conviction, and matter, which one is which? How, which way do we choose? So many of us will choose based upon what feels good, what works for us. And you'll find there are merciful people who like being merciful, and then there are judging people who like to judge. Which one are you? You have a disposition one way or the other. We all do. But let's go beyond that. It's not just the realm of politics or personalities, but also particular problems. And what I mean by this, let's get down to brass tacks. Some of us are liberal when we like to be and conservative when we like to be. When we all do this all the time, it all depends on whether the issue is important to us or has a certain kind of import about our lives. Uh, we might come up with some idea or some, some notion. I'm trying to take a good example. In, this, in some particular situation, we, we are, all of us want to be forgiven, right? We all want to be treated with forgiveness. I mean, all of us are busy judging everybody else who hasn't met up to the standards we live. <laughs> we do both. We talk out of both sides of our mouth, depending on what our goals are <laughs> or what our purposes are. And here we come to why Jesus acts the way he does, because he rejects our dualism. He rejects our love of justice or our love of mercy completely. He is living at a completely different standard than we are. He is not entertaining their judgment because their judgment actually in the end is nothing more than the manipulative agenda of their personal hearts. How do we know that? How do we know that? How do we know that? This is not a text against judgment. It's against false judgment. The law is clear. Do you you hear what they said? Such women should die. Moses said such women. Moses was against all these, these loose women and what they do. You know, he was against women. No, that's what they taught. I thank God that I was not born a Gentile. He would pray every morning. And I thank God I was not born a woman. But in the end, they were not the judge like God is a judge because what does God say in his law? What did Moses write? Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Both of them shall die. Both 
Both, both what has become here, what happens in this text is nothing more than a short change of justice for a mechanical system against women and against the gospel of grace. That is what this is. This isn't about justice. This is about an agenda. This is about death and destruction. This is, and when this happens, when you realize this, I suddenly see Christ's indifference for what it really is. He refuses. Let me tell you something. A judge in this land, anybody would judge God or say they know one from the other about whether you should be justice or mercy. Jesus just says, I reject your false justice, all of you. All of you. All of us. Because <laughs> all we have are the twisted human remains of a desire for mercy when it's convenient and justice when it satisfies us. It's the way we are. We are confused and we, and we are constantly taking religion like they are here as an opportunity for us to solidify our judgments against others, to establish how we are better than you or better than others, how we establish how we are the best, the most loved by God, whatever it is, whatever it happens to be. So what's the answer to this human problem? How do we solve it? What do we do? And what do we do with the fact that that, that this, this false judgment is so common. Are we frozen? No. Because those impulses, that conflict in the human spirit that first wants to be without judgment and wants to say, nobody can judge me. And the other part that says, no, I know that I need to be a good person. I should go on and sin no more. Both of those parts of the human heart that wants a place of change and transformation where sin is not controlling. That's a part of the impulse of the human spirit. And another thing, we're great, you know, we're, we're, grace is controlling. So who am, I, why, who am I presenting to you today in Jesus? I am presenting to you the judge whose name is love. You catch that? He is the judge whose name is love. God is, Jesus is not against proper judgment. Not at all. Anybody would take this text to think that Jesus is teaching some lawlessness that doesn't, doesn't call sin, sin. He's not paying attention. They're owning this for their own agenda because his command, that's actually a command in the voice in Greek, is so extraordinarily clear and vivid. He tells her, go, stop your sinning. After having released her as the judge whose name is what? Love. He is the judge whose name is love. <laughs> now, that, now, 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 this changes everything. Because what is happening? What is happening here? What is happening in this moment as the woman comes? What is, what is, what is happening here? I, I picture us all, we're all happening here. We come here and we come to a savior who, is, who has bought it, but because a transaction has happened in his blood. You see, Jesus is sitting there knowing that he will die in a few short months for women who are adulterers like this woman, like us. He already knows that. He is already affording her the joy and the power and the beauty of forgiving love. He's already doing that. He's already releasing her. And he is the judge. <laughs> and he releases her into his grace. He just does it right there by accepting her and loving her and sending her off to do something that he knows she can only do if he is with her, you see, if he gives her the power to do it. And he knows that. So Jesus in himself, he, he, he knows that transaction and a substitution is imminent. You see, the legal requirements of the law are extraordinary. 
They never are diminished. If you want to be a law keeper, a legalist, a person who, who wants to keep rules and satisfy God, then you have to do it 100% all the time. And for any percent you don't do it, you are going to have to be judged because he is a judge. If you would say, I'm going to earn my salvation, I'm going to earn my place with God, and that's what religious people say, and every one of us wants, I want to earn my place before God, then you meet him as a judge then. And that's, he is an uncompromising one. You know, we often think, sometimes we're mistaken in thinking that a good man, maybe he has 90% goodness, and God meets him with his 10% of his love and forgiveness. And maybe some of you are like 50%. You know, you're good sometimes, you're bad sometimes, but God meets you halfway, and that other half you create. Or maybe you're a bad person. Maybe you know you're a bad person, and you don't give more than 10%. But God meets you with the 90. Every one of those models is false. They are all false. They are all false gospel. They all, they all result in a false promise and a false hope. No, the 90% must give up his 90% to come to Christ. If you are 90% good, you must give up that 90% to come to Christ. And the bad person, well, they got off easy, didn't they? Yes, it is easier. It is easier for a sinful, sinful man to come to Jesus than it is for a good man. Because good people think they've got something on the table. Good people in the end want justice for everybody but themselves. Right? Because they can ask for that. Because they don't screw up like those other screw ups. And they miss the gospel of grace. But what's on the other maybe, maybe that's not a problem here. Maybe the problem is more on the other side. We do live in San Francisco, after all. You've ever heard the word antinomianism? Ooh, that's a good one. Antinomianism. Seven syllables. I, do I give you these words so you can go and impress people. <laughs> Deep hackness. You can pick up girls that way. Antinomianism. <laughs> that's the spirit of our age. It's a lawlessness. Antinomos, the law, a rejecting of all. I know the only imperative is that I be the person I'm supposed to be. That the only imperative I know, I'm going to throw off all, all oppressors, throw off all definitions. Nobody can judge me. <laughs> and then God answers that too. And Jesus says no to the adulterous woman. You must go and sin no more. It's really fascinating to me. We know a lot of times we hear the law and grace kind of contrary. The contrary between freedom and grace and rules and, and, and freedom. And we hear that antinomy in the human condition, and we bring it to Jesus, and we say, you know what? We bring it to the gospel, and, and, and we bring its confusion. But I, do you hear? Jesus is not confused. In fact, the distinction between freedom and grace, I'm sorry, between law and grace, between freedom and rules, doesn't exist in God, because he is the judge whose name is love. See, justice and forgiveness, mercy and justice kiss in his person and kiss at the cross. So the cross itself satisfies justice from eternity. It looks upward at God and says, all justice has been met and looks downward at man and says, all grace has been given. All grace has been given. The fullness of grace has been showered. And the judge whose name is love gives his own life for sinners praise him, trust him, and come to him. So what does this mean for us? We've got to stop pushing the, we have to, these are not antinomies. 
What I mean by this is God calls you to radically love him and radical holiness. Radical holiness. In other words, a pursuit after holiness that will give up sin no matter what, that will say to him, I cherish this one thing and will give it up. Well, instant, she probably loved the man she was with. Usually adultery is really started not by lust, but by love and a desire for love where people feel lonely in their marriages. It's not some, it's, that's usually, every story I know, that's usually how it happens. And so it, but what he, so a command he gives her is what? Give up your lover. You know what? Jesus is always telling you that. Give up your lover, whatever it is, <laughs> and whoever it is, and come and sin no more. Radical obedience is never, ever compromised by the Lord of glory. He's a judge. But at the same time, we ought to have also what? The radical freedom of forgiveness. <sighs> yes. For right here, I learned something else. That that transaction and substitution means this, Eric. Your sins past, your sins present, and your sins future are wiped away by the judge of love. By the judge whose name itself is love. <laughs> How, what does it look like to live in that? You know what, there's, right here you hear it. There's an impulse in the human heart, in that division, in that divisiveness where we separate law and grace in our hearts. Right there, you, the logic is so simple. I've been forgiven past, present, and future. And this is exactly where Eric's mind went. Well, I can do anything I want then, right? <laughs> I can do anything I want. I can be whatever I want. I can experience what I want because that is my truth. And I need to experience and find my truth and express it. No, you don't. You need to find and experience and express his truth because his name is truth and his name is love and his name is Jesus. <sighs> All right, I'm thinking about this. I, I want us to live in this love and, and how do we get there? Um, all right, let's, let's bring some other people to judgment. See where we go. But first, before I even do that, before I even do that, I want to tell you a story. I love this. I got this from my favorite preacher, a guy named Donald Barnhouse. You can find him on, on a podcast. He was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in the 50s and 60s in Philadelphia. And uh, he actually talks about this artist. This is Sir Edward Byrne Jones. This is awful art. I can't stand this stuff. This is called the Pre-Raphaelite uh, phase. It was uh, in the 1840s in England, a bunch of intelligent, very, very, very gifted artists uh, didn't like where art was going, and they wanted to revive kind of a medieval art, and it gets very Rococo and very over, big explosions of color. It's real pretty, and I don't like it, but that's my own aesthetics. But it just looks phony to me. It doesn't look honest to me. But if you look at this, this is the wise man and the angel, and everything's very highly stylized and beautiful. And this, this actual particular painter, Sir Edward Byrne Jones, was so popular, um, it was amazing. Oh, you'll find out how popular it was in the, amongst the English at the time. He was like the pop painter of his day. But uh, there's a story told about him which is kind of beautiful. And the story, the story um, was about him visiting his daughter. And he's visiting his daughter and his grandson, who he's very, very fond of, was at dinner. They're having tea. And uh, he's, he's a, I mean, they're noble people, I guess, in England. But his, it, it, the kid was being a brat. He was being a jerk. And he was being particularly bad that day. So his punishment was to go and stand in the corner. 
So he went over and he stood in the corner for the rest of dinner. Has, have you ever stood in the corner, anybody? Has anybody? Dylan, you have, really? Wow, that's impressive. I never had to do this. I imagine the worst part is how boring it is. He watched, he watched uh, his daughter disciplining his grandson. And like a good grandfather, and you should all learn this, you're all too young to know it, but he didn't say anything. Didn't try to correct his daughter. The next day, he brought his paints to the house. And he went over to the corner, and he knew that his grandson was in that corner a lot, so he began to paint. And the reason I put that painting up there is you can get a picture of the kind of painting it was. It was very colorful and beautiful. It was fairies and butterflies and animals playing and sheep and a pastoral scene. And, and, he, and what he did is he built a corner that his grandson, even when he was being punished for his, for his disobedience, could go to a place where he could find joy. Now, this, this artist was so popular that when they were bombing London, they surrounded that house with sandbags just to protect that corner. In fact, that corner was removed from the house when it was torn down and put in a museum because he was so valued for his artistic ability. You know what? I've seen that. I've seen that a picture of how God's mercy and justice work in our lives. Look, the reality is we're going to come down the pike and you're going to do something stupid. Some of you may commit adultery. I pray, I, I want you to know something. Peter and I pray for every marriage in this church that will never, ever happen. And I'm hoping that God will answer that, and it never will. But I'm not stupid. And I know we're sinful, and God does not give us guarantees. Not like that. But I'll tell you what. We pray about it. It's such a big deal. But what about when it happens? What does God do? All right, well, let's, let's, he puts us in a corner. Yeah where he's painted for us all the stories of his love. These people dragged this woman before the executioners. Let's drag Abraham in there. Let's drag Abraham in. Oh, sure, he's a father in the faith. He taught his wife how to lie. Very practical man Abraham was. He took the promises of God and he redesigned them to include his own actions and thereby precipitated all of our crisis in the Middle East. 3,000 years ago. That's what a little disobedience will get you. From a man. Well, anyway, let's drag him in, Father. We'll drag him into court. Or didn't you say, Father, that a liar who does not trust you deserves judgment? What do you say, Lord? And what does our Father say? I know Abraham was a sinner. And when he sinned, I put him in a corner. I did discipline him in my love. And I showed him a vision that one day I would bless the world through my son, <laughs> through his seed. Yeah, I put him in a corner, and I showed him the treasures of my sovereign love. Jacob. We'll drag Jacob in here. You know why Jacob, we should drag Jacob in here? Jacob's name means liar. Let's drag in Jacob. He was the liar extraordinaire. He cheated his brother out of his inheritance. He was constantly a shyster, constantly the manipulator. He is the great fibber. Well, we have been told that nobody who lies will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's drag him before our father. What do you, what say you, God? You are the judge. And what does our father say? I'm the judge whose name is love. And when Jacob would not obey me, I put him in a corner. I continued to love him and discipline him. 
And there I showed him a vision of angels ascending and descending. There I showed him I was real and I was a God of love. And he wanted to sin no more. He became a different man. Let's drag in Moses. There he is. He's in the text. They quote him. Let's drag him in. Why wouldn't, wouldn't they have? For this is a man whose temper was so out of control, he killed an Egyptian with his bare hands. Let me tell you how much anger you got to have to squeeze the life out of another human being. That's who he was. And that anger, that anger was with him his whole life. So one day, as he stood for God before the people, he got so angry, he hit the rock as hard as possible. Wow, I really did a job with that. He hit the rock as hard as possible. Why? Because he was angry at the people and angry about how they were acting. And God put him in a corner. He showed him that he was the God who was going to bring a land of milk and honey that he one day would see in glory. Oh, yeah. He showed him that Jesus was coming. And you can read it in Deuteronomy. He showed him who he was. How about David? Can't we judge David here? Can't we drag David before the crowd and say, we must stone this man, murderer, adulterer, hedonist, out of control. Where's his impulse control? That man deserves a judgment, doesn't he? But what did our father do? He put David in a corner where he had painted a vision of his eternal love. And David would write words like this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And David would have never written that without the discipline of the Lord on him as a sinful man. And then Peter, I think Peter last, brash and lack of tongue control, always a know-it-all, always thinks he, he's got to say something, always shooting off his mouth. Sound like anybody in, in particular? But in the end, as bold as he was, it was all show because... Because at the moment where it counted, he denied Jesus. At the moment where at the cast hit the rubber hit the road, he said, Yeah, I don't know who that guy is. And did God judge him? No. Put him in a corner and showed him the treasures of his love. So that Peter would finally grasp that the whole aim of God across space and time in Jesus Christ was to make you and I partakers of the divine essence. Something totally new. Something like the world has never seen. Oh yes, he is the judge whose name is love. Now, I can't drag you out right here. I can't. I don't, I don't know you. I don't know you well enough to know this. Maybe your conscience will drag you out, you know, and accuse you. Who are you to stand there on a Sunday morning and act like you're a Christian? Do you know who you are and where you've been and what you've looked at and what you sought and what you love? These people don't. If these people knew, man... They drag you out. You know what I hear when I start thinking that? <sighs> I, wanna, I, just wanna, I want the gospel to break through that so fully for you and me. Why? Because if it breaks through, you'll begin to realize you're in a community where when you tell people what you have done, you're going to hear a bunch of people who are going to tell you, they're not going to drag you before the king. They're going to say, our judge, his, his name is love. What you've done is sin. And that sin has been wiped away at the cross. Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Because that's what you wanted anyway by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're, we're on a whole different trip, aren't we? We're on a whole different... That's why Jesus ignores them. 
because they don't get the new kingdom. They don't get the new life. They don't know the Holy Spirit. They don't know forgiveness. They don't know power. They don't know transformation. They don't know his substitution. They don't know his forgiveness. You see, they can't know and they don't know. But doesn't he, t- he turns to that woman and he lets her go. <laughs> and I have this picture that we as a community, we each individually respond to the Lord, respond to him as Lord. That's what she does, isn't it? She says, no one. And who did she, what did she say? Lord. She's, on, she's there. She's locked in. She knows he's the judge whose name is love. And she has so much to hope for. So much to be excited about. And so much power to go forward on. This is who we must become. You know, it's funny. I, I think about this kind of church that is neither the judging church nor the liber, liberty church. You know, it's never the, the license, a licensed church, do what you please, but doesn't judge anybody either. What kind of a church does it look like in this city? I think that becomes a church that's an enigma. It does, it does church discipline, but never has any rancor or pursuit or justice in it. But it's only to express love. Even when we judge each other in the church, you know why we judge each other? Just to get us back to the Lord of love. It's not to, it's not to punish. We're not, we're not called to punish. We're called to restore and return people to a knowledge of the Lord of love. You see, the way we fashion ministry here at First Press and everything I want us to be by the Holy Spirit and this gospel is completely different. <laughs> and I hope we will follow the difference. And that this story, look, so Augustine said he thought some people took this story out because it was too easy. And, and there will be people to say it about us. We're too gracious. And then somebody else will come along and say, they're too legalistic over there. They got too many rules. They, they, you know what? They demand you be holy about your marriage. And they say that's what God expects. And I'm hoping that the enigma this text has been will be the enigma we become. Does that make sense? About the gospel in this world now. That we will personify it. That we will live it out. And we will become beautiful. <laughs> beautiful pictures of his forgiving grace. Let's pray. Father, this, this picture of your love and your justice and how they mix or how they combine or how they work, it can be so bewildering to us. Sometimes we're scared that you're going to judge us because we've been so bad. And sometimes it seems like that, then you, we get scared you'll judge us because we went and did sinful stuff because we knew you'd forgive us. We've done stuff like that, Father. We've done bad things because we know we can get away with it. Forgive us. Make us into a people that sin no more. They don't want us anymore. Like, like Adele shared it. We, we're just here crying out, Father, for a desire to desire you. We're crying out to help us to begin. To begin. This, all this teaching is so weird and how abstract. Are we judged? Are we not? Father, how do I trust your cross? How do, I, how do I know I'm not just the biggest screw up ever? It doesn't matter. Let your Holy Spirit now speak this good news of love and life into our hearts. <laughs> because that's the only way we're going to hear it. Let it sink past our minds, our objections, our judges, the judge of our own soul. Let, let us go past that, Father, and let us see you as the Lord of love. Yes, Lord, we say. We turn our hearts to you now, in Jesus' name, amen.